0: If it's so important, if it is literally the difference between life and death, failure and success in the Christian life, being able to sustain something versus burning out, the love of God, knowing the love of God is that, then how do we know it and how can we know it? If it's that big of a deal, how do we know it outside of John three sixteen? How do we know it outside of the sort of like, you're told that God loves you, but you really don't believe it. You don't believe that he likes you. How can we experience it? How can we be transformed? How can we change in this place where we're constantly trying to do things to earn God's love to a place where we do things because we're loved? And there's a profound difference in those two things. So I want you uh, to imagine that you are a 10-year-old boy. Now, I know in our culture, that's a little bit weird can be a little bit of a strange thing to ask, but just bear with me. It'll make sense. So I want you to imagine that you're a 10-year-old boy who, along with your mother and little sister, have just moved into your new stepfather's house where your new bedroom happens to be in a converted attic. You love reading, you love sports, you love drawing, and you love falling asleep every night to the Beach Boys' greatest hits on cassette tape, especially the song, Fun, Fun, Fun. And you really, truly feel bad for whoever the girl was who had her T-Bird taken away. That went over some of your heads, and I get that. But Great song. And because you love drawing, you have some basic art supplies like a sketchbook, some colored pencils, some markers, etc. on a makeshift table in said attic-slash-bedroom. And most nights, you fall asleep quickly... Because sleep's never been an issue for you. But on occasion, if you don't fall asleep before the song I Get Around comes up on the cassette tape, things can get a little bit tenuous. Because within about five minutes of shutting off the lights in your room, you start to hear a slight rustling of papers over on your art table. But of course, you're the only one In the room, and there are no open windows or anything of that nature. So your mind starts to run wild with the possibilities. But because you are a pretty timid kid who scares easily, the last thing you would ever do is to flip the light on and actually see what's going on over there. So instead, you pull the covers up over your head in such a way that, if anybody's ever done this, you leave just your nose and your mouth exposed so you can still breathe. Otherwise, it gets too hot. But otherwise, you're tucked in there. You still, are you imagining this? Sticking with me? Okay. And things go on like this. For quite some time, this sort of cycle of go to sleep to the Beach Boys, but if you don't make it before a certain song, you hear the rustling and you tuck the covers over your head until you eventually fall asleep. They go on like this until one morning, somewhat earlier than you would normally wake up. You wake up and you go over to start a new drawing on your drawing table. And the mystery of the rustling papers is solved. When you happen to see a couple of cockroaches run out from underneath the drawing of the cat you did for your girlfriend at church. Now, imagine that this revelation is more terrifying for you than the theories you'd constructed, right? Sure, they're cockroaches, but you're not the sort of kid who's okay with that, right? Just cockroaches, but that's that's a big deal. Some of you even still can relate. You're sensitive, you're bookish, and you're small in stature and diminutive just in general, and so cockroaches are a monster, essentially, and they look like monsters, but... So instead of your response being going on the war path to destroy the cockroaches, you instead uh, mention the cockroaches to your stepdad whose response is to act like it's not a big deal at all. And as a result, you resolve to basically live with it the best you can, which lasts a total of about three nights. Because in the fourth night, You don't fall asleep right away because now you're aware of the fact that it's cockroaches that are rustling the papers and you're waiting to see what will happen. And you notice this time, four nights later, that the sounds that you are hearing aren't just the rustling of the papers anymore, but they've somehow moved in different places throughout the room, specifically closer to your bed. And you're confident this isn't your imagination. This is factual. You can hear them. It's not a projection, right? And because of that, You have this moment, you could call it courage, you could call it sheer panic. Sometimes they're the same thing. And you jump out of your bed, instead of covering up your head, you jump out of your bed and you flip the light on. And when you do, you see three large roaches just inches above your pillow. The pillow that you had just had your head on seconds before. At this point, you need the situation to be remedied, to be dealt with. So you go downstairs to your mom and your stepdad's room, and you wake them up, and you tell them what's going on. Now, I want you to imagine that instead of compassion and understanding from your stepdad, because after all, who should have to sleep with roaches potentially crawling on them, you receive what amounts to and ends up being a catastrophic insult when he calls you a certain part of the female anatomy before waking up your mom and instructing her to go handle it, which she does. And maybe, even though you hate your stepdad, his words land hard and they land heavy, that insult, and they scar you in ways that you won't realize until you are much older. Imagine that you unknowingly carry that insult around with you, and maybe when you hit a growth spurt, you start lifting weights. And you get as big and as strong as you can, and you have a natural proclivity towards it, so you do get really big and really strong and bigger than most the people. And then you shave your head. And then you get a bunch of tattoos. And then you join a mixed martial arts gym. And then you wear mostly black And when you play football, you try to hit harder than anyone, and your friends tell you that it's horrible trying to tackle you because did you know that you scream when you run the ball and that it's terrifying? (laughs) And all the while, as you're doing these things, you think you're doing them because you like them. You like to lift. You like to hit hard. You like to get tattoos. You like to wear black. You like to shave your head. But the reality is you're doing them because subconsciously you want to prove to everyone but especially that stepdad who you haven't even seen since you were 11 and a half years old when he and your mother divorced, that you are not in fact what he said that you are. Imagine then how hard it would be for you now in your 20s, but still living as a frightened 10-year-old boy to believe that God as a father loves you. Truly, truly loves you. Imagine how hard it would be to believe that even though you've become a Jesus follower and you're cool with Jesus, but your image of what God as a father is like is jacked. One of the great satirists of the late 1990s, early 2000s, Chuck Palahniuk, in his first novel has an encounter between the two main characters where they're discussing and having this sort of existential crisis about who they are and their identity and their lives and the things that shape them and what things they're going to do going forward. And in this conversation, they come to this very seminal moment where they realize that all of how they've been living, the things they've operated out of, have all, everything to do with a father wound. And this is what one character says to another. He says this, What you have to understand is your father... Was your model for God. And if you're male, and you can insert female in here because it's still true, but if you're male and you're Christian and you're living in America, your father is your model for God. And if you never know your father, if your father bails out or dies or is never at home, what do you believe then about God? What you end up doing is you spend your life searching for a father and God. And then, in Obviously, in the unhealth of this, what you have to consider is the possibility that God doesn't like you. Could be God hates you or us. See, the story, the truth is that I grew up without a father. He chose to deny that I even existed. He was not there when my mother gave birth, he was not on my birth certificate, he never acknowledged me. Until I found out about a year or less before he died. I did, however, have a series of stepdads, each one seemingly worse than the one before. And that story I told you is 100% true of my life. What that meant for me was that up until 2010, which was 10 years into my career as a pastor, and 14 years into following Jesus, I knew literally nothing of the love of the Father. Now, I'd preached on it a lot. I'd taught on it a lot. I'd probably counseled people about it. But personally, I didn't know it. Capital K-N-O-W. I didn't know it. Now, don't get me wrong. I knew it intellectually. Intellectually. I knew all the key verses from John 3.16, right? So God so loved the world, all the way down to more obscure ones that most people don't know. But the factual knowledge that I possessed had yet to make what's called the 18-inch journey from my head into my heart. Looking back, I'd say I knew that God loved me, but that's only because he was sort of obligated to. He may have loved me abstractly in the John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and I just so happened to be a part of the world, and he was sort of obligated, you know, to love me because of that. But apart from that obligation, and here's a key distinction, I didn't think he liked me. See, lots of us can believe that God loves us abstractly, but we don't really believe that he actually likes us. I didn't think that God bragged about me to the angels, you know, when I did something that made him proud. I didn't think that I put a smile on his face, and I certainly did not think that He was proud of me. This is 10 years into being a pastor. I guess I believe that he tolerated me, but with a fair amount of, disdain, of fair amount, excuse me, of disdain, just as my stepfathers had. I was there. They tolerated me but mostly they didn't like me. Mostly I was in the way. Mostly I, for them, was a means to an end. See, nothing I could ever do was good enough to earn his love. Just as nothing I ever did growing up was enough to earn the love of my birth father or of my stepdads. Straight A's, not good enough. Never in trouble when I was young, not good enough. Good at sports, kind to others. Two-time spelling bee champ not enough, it wasn't enough. I couldn't do enough to prove to my birth father that he shouldn't have abandoned me. So unbeknownst to me, I tried and I tried and I tried to earn God's love. But ultimately, I found myself in a cycle of try, fail in my mind, then resentment, then rebellion. Has anybody ever been there? You try to earn somebody's love. There's a moment where you realize you haven't done it or it's not enough, so you've failed. And so then you resent them. How much is going to be enough? And then after you cross that line of resentment, what comes next is rebellion. It's anger. Then in the late fall of 2010, so a little under 13 years ago, I hit a wall, not just a little wall, You've probably hit walls in your life i've hit walls in my life times where you feel like you're not moving forward in different areas this was not that this was something totally other something different think of those commercials like when i was growing up these commercials uh with the crash test dummies where they have the sort of frame of the car and it's going whatever miles per hour and it's into a brick wall and it shows the damage that's done to the crash test dummies right And what happens if you're not wearing your seatbelt? I crashed into a wall at whatever miles per hour not wearing my metaphorical seatbelt. I had metaphorical whiplash, disorientation, shock, residual trauma, and the list goes on. I was an absolute mess, so much so that I could not preach for two months, could not physically get up to the pulpit for two months And I was grasping for answers like a drowning man for a life preserver, just flailing, thrashing, looking anywhere to figure out why was I going through so much pain? What was going on? What did I need to do to get out of it? Hurry up and get me out of this. Hurry up and get me out of this. I wanna get back to normal, right? Anybody ever been there? Thankfully, God brought some people into my life who were able to minister to me and used other friends to help me through that time. One of those friends been friends with since we were very, very young, who had actually led to Jesus and who I'd done street ministry with several years before, told me something profound that changed my life. He said this, it's gonna be on the screen. He said, this is not the season of your life where you find out how strong you are. It's the one where you find out how loved you are. He said, Josh, I know You you want to project strength, and you actually are strong, but this is not the season of your life where you find out how strong you are. It's the one where you find out how loved you are. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And it wasn't in that instant that things shifted in terms of I was out of it and I was better, but it was the catalyst. It was the starting point of a journey to actually understand how loved I was, to figure that out. Here's the truth, a truth. It's Living the Christian life, so attempting to live for Jesus, living the Christian life without knowing and understanding the love of God is like going scuba diving without an oxygen tank. You can stay down there for a while and you can even see some cool stuff, but eventually you're gonna be in trouble. And that was my story. I was scuba diving, metaphorically speaking, without an oxygen tank. I was serving Jesus. I was a pastor. I was a lead pastor. I was doing all the things that you're supposed to do. And I was seeing some cool stuff. I had seen some cool stuff, encounters with the Holy Spirit, transformation of people's lives, people being radically saved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was great. But without the tank, I ran into some trouble. The tank, of course, the oxygen, the air we breathe, that propels us, that compels us in the Christian life is the love of God. The Apostle Paul says, God's love compels us. It's what moves us forward. It's a big deal. So if it's so important, if it is literally the difference between life and death, failure and success in the Christian life, being able to sustain something versus burning out, the love of God, knowing the love of God is that, then how do we know it? And how can we know it? If it's that big of a deal, how do we know it outside of John 3:16? How do we know it outside of the sort of like you're told that God loves you, but you really don't believe it, you don't believe that He likes you? How can we experience it? How can we be transformed? How can we change from this place where we're constantly trying to do things to earn God's love to a place where we do things because we're loved? And there's a profound difference in those two things. I'm gonna go through two really quick, and spend more time on the third one, but this is not gonna be a lot longer. And I'll explain why as we get closer to the end here. But here's how we know the love of God, how we know it, not just intellectually. Some of this has to do with that. Some of this does have to know with head knowledge. But how do we know it beyond that? The first way is the Sunday school answer, but that's okay. The first way we know the love of God is Jesus, okay? Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God revealed to us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his being. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you, like me, had a very difficult time relating to Father God, it's a great place to start to look at Jesus. If there's something you believe about God that cannot be found in the person of Jesus, it needs to go out the window. It needs to go out the window. Jesus came to show us what God was like. So if you still have an image of an Old Testament God and you don't find that in Jesus, it needs to go. Scripture tells us this very thing. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is God used to communicate and reveal the nature of who he was and his character and all these things in lots of different ways in the Old Testament. Back in the day, he used to do this. So he'd use prophets to communicate he'd use revelations, he'd use miracles he used all kinds of different things to reveal himself but then he says in these last days which we're living in they were living in them back then we're always living in the last days in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He used to speak to us this way. Notice the finality. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In the Greek, that's in a certain tense that implies complete and total finality. End of story. He has spoken once and for all through the person of Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe we know what God is like because of Jesus. We know what Father God is like because of Jesus. He has spoken. So if you think in your mind about things related to God and how he views you, that you don't find in the stories of Jesus and how Jesus interacted with people and how Jesus treated people and what he said to them, I would encourage you to pray and get rid of those things. We'll talk about that some in a minute. It's a huge thing to have this Revelation of Jesus given to us. Part of the problem, and I say this gently, but part of the problem is when I say Jesus reveals the Father, some of you maybe don't know Jesus enough. So I'd encourage you to do more than just listen to me or Jordan or whoever, but read the Gospels and really get to know him through those. Number two, oh, I'm sorry, one more. First John 4, 9 through 10, still on this Jesus thing. This is how, very clear, this is how God showed his love among us. So do you want to know the love of God? He tells us this is how, this is how. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Do you know there's a verse, it's an Old Testament prophecy called a messianic prophecy that talks about Jesus and when he would go to the cross and when he would be resurrected but all the things leading up to that and it says for the joy set before him he endured the cross. For he doesn't say he enjoyed the cross that he looked forward to it. We know he did not. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured it. He counted the joy that would come after worth the price that he'd have to pay of being crucified. Well, what was the joy that was set before him? The joy set before him was an eternity spent with you, which is crazy to think about. Because I'm not even sure I'd want to spend an eternity with me sometimes, right? Right? Some of you were like, I wouldn't want to spend an eternity with you. And you know, I'm just anyway. But he looked at you. And not this is where we have to get it out of, of this abstract place. He didn't look at you sort of like as this big, you know, like ball of humanity or whatever, this big blob, and say, I'm gonna spend eternity with them. That would make no sense. No, he looked at you individually. Any of us who would decide to follow him, any of us who would commit our life to him even in the midst of our imperfections and our weakness and all the times we would try and not do well and all those things. He still, he looked at us in that state and he said, you are worth the cross. You are joy set before me, not endurance, not I kind of have to spend eternity with you because you kind of skated in because you prayed a prayer once and I kind of got to let you in now. Not that, the joy he looked forward to spending eternity with us. Now, he's doing a lot of work to prepare us for that, so he can tolerate us at times, joking around, but in all seriousness, we were the joy set before him. When was the last time that you woke up, first thing in the morning, and the first thing you thought, the first thing you said to yourself was this, I am the joy that was set before Jesus, that he considered it worth going to the cross for. And I'm gonna live out of that place. That's who I am. Pastor Mike talked about that last week in terms of identity. It was such a great word, but that's who I am. I'm the joy set before him. See, we never have to wonder again if we're loved by God. It has been settled. Number two is the church. How do we know the love of God? How do we know when God loves us, if God loves us? The church, the church is God's gift to us. It's his gift. First John 4, 7, and then 11 through 12 says this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We are his body. We are his body. We are, to use an old cliche, but it's still good. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. There are so many quotes and so many things I could talk about regarding the fact that you may be the only Jesus that someone ever sees. But that's actually okay. That's the way it's supposed to be. Paul actually says, like, that's the way that it works. He says, We've received from God what's called the ministry of reconciliation, not counting the world's sins against it. And it says as though God were making his appeal through us. So when we share the love of God with another person, when we care for somebody, whether it's in our own church, whether it's outside of these walls, which hopefully happens a lot, whenever you do those things, You are representing Jesus. You are demonstrating his love. But more importantly for our context this morning, whenever somebody who's a Christian cares for you, gives you a word of encouragement, prays for you, visits you, brings you a meal when you've had a family situation, just sits down and listens to you for two hours over coffee, whatever that is, they are demonstrating the love of God to you. And oftentimes we overlook those things as small or trivial when in fact they're not. They're literally God in the flesh in a very different way. I don't need to get into all the theology behind that, but Scripture tells us that's essentially what's happening. We are the body of Christ. There was a story during my my season I mentioned earlier in 2010 when I was going through all this craziness where I was sitting alone on the couch. Carrie and Lincoln was two years old. Carrie and Lincoln were... Out doing something. I was sitting alone on my couch, and I can't even tell you the levels of oppression that I felt like I was under. I felt like I could not stand up. I felt like the world was coming to an end. It was not good. It was a mess. And in that moment, I just said to God, God, I need somebody to show up. I need somebody to show up right now. Like, and literally, the words are out of my mouth. I need someone to show up right now. I look, I open my eyes. I was sitting in our front room, and a car pulls up. Not kidding. A car pulls up right in front of my house. And one of our good friends, she gets out of her car and she walks up and she's really small and very small voice. And she walks up and she knocks on the door and I open the door because, you know, it's like you pray for something, but then you're still confused or like you forget you just prayed that. But she, I opened the door and and I looked at her and I'm just a mess. And she just says to me, um feel like God told me to come over? And I was like bawling. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm pretty sure he did. And thank you for being the kind of person that has ears to listen to God and is willing to be obedient when you probably thought, is it okay just to randomly show up to my pastor's house (laughs) and tell him God told me to come? Thank you for having the courage to do that. I knew the love of God. I started to experience the love of God, like God loves me enough that he sent this woman to my house at this exact right time when I needed it so desperately. It was also during that season that Carrie and I would go different places, different churches out of the state just to visit and to get refreshed and to receive prayer. And I can't tell you from all the way from California to the East Coast to Wisconsin to down in Kansas City, all these places, almost anywhere we would go, anywhere I would go, when somebody would pray for me, the thing they would almost always, and I never told anybody I was a pastor, I never said a word, and I certainly didn't look like one at the time, and hardly now, but especially back then, and so, but anytime they'd pray for me, they'd pray different stuff, and they'd always, always, I just feel like God wants me to tell you that he's proud of you, and I At times, it was hard for me to believe it, to be honest, but ultimately, it did get through. That's the gift of the church. That's what the church is supposed to look like. That should be a common practice. Not that people are in those levels of crisis like I was in, and I hope nobody goes through that, but the point is, we're supposed to be caring for each other. We're supposed to be embodying the love of God. If there are people in our church who don't know the love of God, some of that may be Falls back on some of us. The last way that we know, last way, and then we're almost done, is the one that I was talking about earlier, the one that really you have to have is an experience with the Father's love. You have to have an experience of the Father's love. You know, Pastor Mike and Pam could tell you about the tradition they come from and the emphasis on experience and the sort of like potential pitfalls of that, you know, things where it gets a little weird, right, at times and, you know, but, but that being said, that doesn't take away from the sheer power of those things. And I wouldn't want to live the Christian life without those things. See, we have this sort of Western scientific rationalistic mindset, and so much of Christianity has capitulated to that, and we forget that Christianity was actually an ancient Near Eastern religion that had a lot of mystics and was built on visions and dreams and miracles, right? We're supposed to have an experience Something that transcends head knowledge and experience of the Father's love, and this isn't just what I'm saying. This isn't just what some tradition of denomination decided that was a good idea. This is what the Bible communicates over and over again. And you see, Paul he prays many different things to the churches. You want an interesting Bible study? Go through and read what Paul prays for churches. It's interesting stuff. And in this, to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians three, or excuse me, Ephesians three, seventeen through nineteen, he says this, and I pray. Some of my favorite, probably my favorite prayer Paul, Paul prays. I pray that you being rooted and established in what? Love. Rooted and established in love. Not rooted and established in knowledge of scripture, although I love that. Not rooted and established in proper theology or even good works or even whatever or moral behavior. No, nope. being rooted and established in love. Then I so I pray that for you. that you may have the power, the power. So it takes power together with all the Lord's holy people to do what? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep. Do you think he's trying to make a point here, right? This is the sort of you know, ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus. I pray that you're rooted and established in love and that you have power through Holy Spirit to grasp this love, how long and wide and high and deep it is, and to know this is such an interesting turn of phrase, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You ever read that and caught that caught your attention? Wait a second. He's praying that we can know something that he says surpasses knowledge. Like, wait a second. Like, how is that possible? And this is where the English, English language doesn't serve us all that well, because actually what he's saying in this word love, the first love, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, the word know there is yada. We've talked about this before. It's yada. It's an Old Testament word. And you first find it in Hebrew in Genesis where Adam knew Eve, and they conceived a child. It's a deep knowing. It's an intimacy It's a union of spirit and soul and body. It's all-encompassing. It's not head knowledge. It's not factual, intellectual assent to a set of beliefs. It's something transcendent and something that impacts you, that you feel in your body. You feel in your spirit. He wants us to be rooted and established in that kind of love. He wants us to be able to grasp how deep and wide and high and long the love of Christ is, to have the power to do that and to know this love that surpasses head knowledge. That's basically what it's saying. I want you to know in the deepest parts of your soul a love that surpasses knowing just through this. Then he says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness with God. Basically what he's saying is that we can't be filled without that. This has to go beyond mere intellect. So what does it look like? When I say an experience, what does that look like? I'll just tell you, for my personal experience, which I've shared a lot of this morning, that it's an individual experience, an encounter that you can't put words to, but it's usually comes through prayer. Hold that thought. We love, we're told, because he loved us. Some translations actually read, we love him because he loved us, but that's actually incorrect. That word him isn't there. It actually just says we love, period, because he loved us. We love because he loved us. If we don't know that he loves us, if we don't know, capital K-N-O-W, that he loves us, we will not love others. It's that simple. It's that simple. There's a super well-known scripture that just says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? We hear that all the time. And some of us, that's easy to obey because we don't love ourselves all that well. So yeah, I'm fulfilling my that commandment because I'm critical and harsh towards myself. I'm unforgiving towards myself. I'm judgmental towards myself. And so that's easy for me to treat my neighbors like that. That's not what it's about. Again, the standard translation leaves this kind of flat and incomplete. What it actually says in the original Hebrew is this. I have this on the screen, not the Hebrew part, just the English translation. It says, it's a a statement of fact. It says, and you are going to love others in the same way that you love yourself. It's not so much a commandment to do, it's a statement of fact. You will do this. And if you don't know the love of the Father, if you haven't encountered the love of the Father, you will not love yourself. Well, I promise, 100% guarantee, I have yet in all my years of ministry to meet someone who love themselves well without knowing the love of the father. And almost everybody I know who has not loved themselves well, there's a father wound. Here's the truth, and then we're almost done. Understanding and accessing true love is at the core of all spiritual practices, point blank, period. If you are not rooted and established in love, if you don't know the love of father, everything else you're doing is just performance. It's trying to earn something that you already have. It's the original trick that Satan pulled in the garden with Eve. He tried to get her to earn something that she already had. She was already created in the image of God, but Satan tried to convince her that she needed to be created in the image of God. You look, go check it out. Right? You'll be you'll work your whole life and burn yourself out and never feel good enough all because you're trying to earn something you never realized you actually had. In the song Abba which is the heat which is the old Hebrew word for father deep intimacy it's what Jesus referred to God as even in the Lord's prayer abba which was what set people off and made them so upset that he would refer to God with that kind of intimacy kind of intimate tender word but in the song abba by Jonathan David and Melissa Helser one line sums up this entire message what i'm talking about today this sort of knowing the love of God and holding on to it they say this Your thoughts define me. And speaking to God, they say, Your thoughts define me. I'm going to let go of all my judgments about myself. Other people have said, My father wounds. I need an encounter with you, and I want your thoughts to define me. And imagine if the whole church could grasp this and live into it. What might be possible? Imagine if you had a whole bunch of people, let's just say here at New Point Church, and every single person here had a deep revelatory experience and knowledge of the love of the Father, and they let go of all the other baggage, and they lived from that place and lived out in love. Never tried to prove anything again. Never tried to earn anything again.